BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Mr. Mark Ellis, sir, good to see you. Oh, good to see you, Jacqueline. This is the time of the year that we love. I'm not sure about our fans, though, because training camp is now in full swing. Your your boy Aaron Rodgers walking into camp looking like Cameron Poe from Con Air. It's just <laughs> such a good time to be a sports fan when you just have that excitement about the season. And look, you could kind of put your excitement about maybe maybe your team won the Super Bowl last year, and so now you think you're going to win the Super Bowl again. That was maybe sort of how this fan base was feeling when this new <laughs> trilogy we're about to talk about was on on the precipice of being released. Yeah, and by the end of it, they felt like I did as a Packers fan at the end of our season. <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you <laughs> is how you bring out a film. First of all, that's right. We're taking a journey. That is the Hobbit trilogy, starting with an unexpected journey. Shout out to our fans, Alex uh, Heller from Down Under, Hellier from Down Under, Phil Calderon, Anthony Post, Johan Gustafsson, Gustafsson, Jimmy Phillips, Santiago Ortiz from Mexico. All around the globe, people have been asking for us to do the Hobbit trilogy. We're finally taking a crack at it. This is definitely one that had a lot of, um, let's just say conversation, but for as bad as I think some of us remember this trilogy, it doesn't actually bear that out, I think, with the scores. Because the first one, Unexpected Journey, came out in 2012, 64% fresh on the tomato meter, 83% on the audience score. Desolation of Smog was 74% certified fresh on the tomato meter with an 85 cent audience score. But then the Battle of Five Armies it really fell off the cliff at 59% rotten, but still a 74% audience score. So... We have a guest with us, you know, this morning that can maybe help us break it down. Mr. Lon Harris, he's called the professor. I don't even know, Lon, where where aren't you writing these days? Because I feel like you're a little bit of everywhere. Screen uh, junkies and everywhere yeah. between. I do some stuff uh, I do some stuff for fandom. I write some stuff for .LA. I write a newsletter about streaming TV for Inside. You know, uh, uh, some more news. The YouTube channel, some more news. Uh, you know, some, some odds and ends here and there. <laughs> uh, Mark, what about you? Was this, what What did, when did you see, this had to be when you were still in your schmoes days, right? Doing the Hobbit? Oh, yeah. We this were in the still. throes of schmoes. And so <laughs> there was obviously the big frame rate debate controversy that we'll get into when we talk about the movie talk of all three of these movies. But yeah, I, I mean, look, I was excited because these are big time 
spectacle blockbuster world establishing movies and the fact that they were prequels i thought it was going to be neat to see the ramp up to the lord of the rings journeys even though i was never as invested in lord of the rings as some other properties that that i i love and cherish i appreciated lord of the rings and so going into this i was like this is going to be fun I'm not sure what I'm getting. I'm not sure I'm going to care as much of Lord of the Rings. And it seems like the tomato meter has borne that out because the three original Lord of the Rings movies averaged 93% on the tomato meter. They're getting into an Ivy League school. Uh, the Hobbit prequels are looking at safety schools. They're looking definitely at definitely looking at safety schools. It's a state school very close to home. Yeah. Very close to home. Uh, Mom, before we get into whether Rotten Tomatoes is wrong real quick, I just have like a real quick question for you before I ask Mark to give us a synopsis. Have you written an honest trailer for for the Hobbit movies? Like, have you written lines <laughs> trying to I take these down? I, I have not. I think okay. they probably I think they probably got to it before my time. I think there is there. There are yeah. honest trailers for them. I was just not on the team yet. OK, so now that now that's like the homework for our audience is go look at the honest trailers and see if Lon's writing would have would have improved it a bit. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that's rude. That's <laughs> no, so rude. They were always very talented, funny. No, no, I know. They're totally great. I'm just messing with it because I was like, if there's a line that you wrote on one of these movies, I so want to hear about it. But first, Mark, real quick, let's go ahead and break down what exactly happens in these three movies. And I don't know. Good luck. Did you say real quick? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know what? Actually, I actually think you can do it really quickly if you only stay to the parts that you should have talked about and not the ridiculousness that they added into it. All right. Well, look, these are based on uh, appendices and other works from J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, and so what we're doing here is we're basically very loosely based, I should say. So we have this Hobbit Bilbo and we have a bunch of orcs and we have a bunch of dwarves and we have a bunch of elves and we're all trying to basically battle for survival. And so our unexpected journey is going to take us to places uh, like searching for treasure that is guarded by a dragon named Smaug. And then it ultimately is going to lead up to this gigantic climactic battle that takes like nine years to finish. <laughs> and it involves Sauron, who is sending armies of orcs to attack the Lonely Mountain. And so now the fate of Middle-earth is kind of at stake here. And the, 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 the men, the humans, I guess you should say, the elves, the dwarves, they're all sort of in this battle together. And either they're going to team up and they're going to prevail or they're going to continue to fight separately and they're all likely going to die and Middle-earth is going to be vanquished forever for all of times and we'll never get the really cool movies that Peter Jackson gave us in the early 2000s. No. Oh, man. If that is an indictment, I don't... <laughs> I don't know. And they're spiders. Did I point out they're spiders? Because they're spiders. I don't know if that is an indictment of how bad they are, but it's pretty close. I, I have a feeling this is where we're going to get Spicy Mark talking about these movies, so I'm very, I'm very excited for it. Real quick, though, Lon, is Rotten Tomatoes wrong with this average? I... I, don't I mean, know. I feel like I feel like it is justifiable to say that the Hobbit movies are not on the level of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. To me, that's fair. If if I I, I concede the Ivy League school versus maybe a backup school, but I think we're definitely talking about UC system, not Cal State system here. Like <laughs> I think we're we're still. So I I, I feel like seventies maybe low 80 like that 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 makes a lot of sense to me i think the audience score on these is pretty much right on i feel like the critics by the time you get to five armies 59 percent is low come on these Dang. are very accomplished 
as the professor is his name of, on the Schmodown, I think it's great that you just shaded an entire <laughs> like sub degree of Cal of State Northridge. I got a ton of love for you guys. You're doing great. Cal State He's San Bernardino, a fine program, a fine program. Everyone's matriculation <laughs> choice. I can't yeah. say anything. Mark went to Wake, so and he keeps that. It keeps that, you know. I went to Wake Forest, but it's not really what you do in college. It's not where you go to college. It's what you do once you get there. And so once I got to Wake, I basically decided that I didn't really need to go to college anymore. (laughs) And so if you go to like a Cal State Fullerton or a Cal State Northridge, if you make if you commit to your classes, then you can have a lot of success. So I feel like. These movies, Jacqueline, are more like me getting into Wake Forest, where you're just granted this prestigious sheen and veneer, but what did you actually do? (laughs) What did you add? What did I add to the legacy of Wake Forest? That's the same question I'm going to be asking the Hobbit prequels about Lord of the Rings overall, because I feel like Rotten Tomatoes is right, and I feel like the Battle of the Five Armies might be a little high for me. I just feel like it just got so long in the tooth but I'll also say this if these were the movies that kicked off the Lord of the Rings films that we got I think we would have looked at them in a different light because they are still these amazing accomplishments of of just cinematic scope and so to see that on a big screen if we did not have those other great older brothers and sisters to compare it to I think maybe we'd look at the Hobbit more fondly I think that's really true I think if you look if you look at these three movies together, we become like I I was talking uh, over the weekend about Netflix's The Gray Man, a very high profile, big budget recent release. And and things that I would point out that were, you know, things that I thought made it not quite as good or that I didn't enjoy. People are so willing to dismiss. They're like, yeah, OK, there's a lot of digital smoke and that scene looks choppy and blurry and you can't tell who's punching who, but it was fun. I liked it. And it's so weird to me that we're willing to be really forgiving with something kind of stupid and generic like the gray man, but then something like this with the this level of detail and these costumes and these sets and this massive cast and this really sort of interesting, because he is like what Mark was saying up top is right, that he is adding a lot. He's layering in a lot of stuff that's not in the Hobbit books in a really interesting way that kind of shifts and alters and refracts your view of everything that happens in the Lord of the Rings movies. And sure, it's not. It's not perfect. I, I, I grant that. There are there are flaws and nitpicks and things you can point out. But the fact that we're so harsh on these movies and so judgmental and then something, you know, like Morbius will come out and people will be like, ah, it's Morbin time. Let's have fun. And yeah. I just like, I don't get the disconnect there. I, I don't disagree with you on that one, Lon. I think, okay. Do I have to be this person? Am I going to be the Hobbit apologist on this podcast? I guess, you know what? Join us. Here we go. Um, It's going to be me, as they like to say. Uh, (laughs) I think if we just like take it out of it, 64, 74, 59%. The original Lord of the Rings, before we got to see them, the folks at New Line were hoping for that kind of critical reception because they were positive that that thing was going to fall off a cliff. And if it wasn't stacking up to the legacy of this incredible trilogy that made billions at the box office, swept the Oscars for the last film, and just became this huge phenomenon to the point that Amazon literally wrote a blank check at the hopes of even getting an inch of that level of cred, I don't think we can say that this is a complete failure because they managed to do it. 
The problem with it and the reason why that score is the way that it is is because I'm like, honestly, I'm okay with it. They had to replace the director last minute. Guillermo del Toro was supposed to make this movie and he basically said, F off, I want to go to another Hellboy, you know? And there's been so many different examples of like things that happened in this movie that should have gone horribly. The fact that they wouldn't green light it unless they turned it into a three-parter. Originally, they only wanted to make it a two-parter. There's just so many things that this trilogy, I think, had to overcome. And I think, look, you guys put Richard Armitage in a movie and Martin Freeman, and there's just something in the Tumblr verse of me that says that we have to give this movie more grace <laughs> because it really embraced thirst in a way that I don't think the first one did outside of Aragon pushing that door open. Whoo, okay. So yes, I, I think Rotten Tomatoes is slightly wrong. I think this movie is stacking up against the legacy of greatness and that if it wasn't the movie that followed that with the same principal pe- people, in fact, having Peter Jackson involved in it actually made the reception of it more harsh. I think that that's it. But that's me. So I'm saying Rotten Tomatoes is wrong. I think we can raise this tide a lot higher. Yeah. I have a counter to that, but Lest Lon trashed the gray man again. And did note, <laughs> it took him seven minutes to bring up the gray man in a Hobbit prequel discussion. I'm obsessed. Um, I'm a little obsessed with the gray yeah, man. I'll, save it, I'll, take, I'll, I'll save it that one. for movie talk. We can hear from the critics at the time, and then we can get into our discussion yes. because I have a counter to Jacqueline's argument. Okay, I appreciate that. And we will definitely be tuned in <laughs> for that one. But first, let's go ahead and cut this tension. And, and take a little a little side trip with Mr. Tim Ryan for our favorite segment, Two Minutes with Tim. Brian, cue the music. Two Minutes with Tim. Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy was justifiably celebrated for, among other things, brilliantly adapting three dense, rich volumes into three dense, rich movies. One of the biggest criticisms of Jackson's Hobbit trilogy was that it was an adaptation of a relatively slim book into three epic movies. So while each entry in the Lord of the Rings films was certified fresh at at least 91% on the tomato meter, the Hobbit movies were met with a decidedly more muted reaction. Visually stunning in spots, action-packed in others, but less magical overall than the original trilogy, and often too overstretched. Here's a quick breakdown. The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey from 2012, is fresh at 64% on the tomato meter with 305 reviews, and it has an 83% audience score. The Desolation of Smaug from 2013 is certified fresh at 74% with 251 reviews and it has an 85% audience score. And The Battle of the Five Armies from 2014 is rotten at 59% with 267 reviews and it has a 74% audience score. So what did the critics have to say? In a fresh review for The Desolation of Smaug, Sheila O'Malley of RogerEbert.com wrote, The thematic elements are in place, the emotional tension is highly strung, and the action unfolds in a wave like the fire erupting from the dragon's mouth, overtaking all in its path. However, in a rotten review of The Battle of the Five Armies, Joe Gross of the Austin American Statesman wrote, To put it as politely as possible, there simply isn't enough good material there to sustain three good features. So that's the Hobbit trilogy. Jacqueline, Mark, if you want to enjoy a film about a magical mystery tour directed by Peter Jackson featuring four guys who tried to make their own Lord of the Rings movie, you should definitely check out Get Back, starring the Beatles. Back to you, folks. (laughs) Nicely done, Tim. Very nicely done. Which Get Back is pretty great. It oh, is I definitely great. recommend watching You it. watch yeah. Paul McCartney write the song Get Back right there. It yeah. is unbelievable. It is kind of crazy. It is kind of crazy. Anyway, another great thing that Peter Jackson did, an archival project at that. Um, one of many cool things that he did. 
look, <laughs> we're going to talk about it. But critics had a lot to say at the time. But I really want to not keep folks waiting any longer for Mark coming through with the heat. So we're going to go ahead and transition over into movie talk so he can bring bring this fire rebuttal. <laughs> Brian, cue the music. Okay, we're going to set the stage for movie talk. But first, Mark, what do you got? Because, like, again, I'm here with bated breath. Okay, well, I want to I want to get Jimmy Phillips's email out of the way because Jimmy Jimmy Phillips is a big fan. He's a fresh member of the Ketchup Crew, and so Jimmy's going to set the tone here for this conversation. I'm not going to read the whole email because Jimmy goes really in depth. I'm wow. just gonna I'm just gonna say at the end, Jimmy says, "I'll just add the complaints I've heard about the quote errors of the movie by and large come from people who have no deep understanding of the universe mm. and fail to see the forest for the trees." But I'll admit some of the CGI is bad, and they maybe maybe could have been two movies. So we'll talk about all of these things. My counter to the point that I actually laid out to Jacqueline and Lon is, is that, you know, if we were comparing the Hobbit prequels to Lord of the Rings, that we would have looked at them much more favorably. However, I think a large part of the appeal of the prequel trilogy is seeing characters that we either saw in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and fell in love with like a Gandalf or somebody like that. But then you also have the hints of what's to come with somebody like Bilbo or the rest of the dwarves. And so without our emotional attachment to those characters that was built in from the three great movies we got, there's a chance that we like the Hobbit movies even less. So as much as they had to follow a tough act, they also got a break from that tough act. But I mean, of course, though, that it wouldn't make sense to do it any other way because it's a continuation of a franchise. And in a lot of ways, this is what makes the Hobbit movies so worthwhile, like worth making. Like a lot of people were like, why do we need this? It's not as important a story, you know, like how and and I think there are a lot of instances like, uh, you know, when we see Legolas and we start to understand his conflict with the dwarves, which then in the Lord of the Rings movies, when he befriends Gimli, it enhances our understanding of the importance of that relationship to him because it's how he's gotten over this, you know, like this tension he used to have that we see in The Hobbit. So, I mean, I don't think that's a criticism so much. I think that's like some of the best stuff I think Jackson does in the Hobbit movies is how he or uh, Saruman's like initial moment of betrayal when he first sees the power of Sauron and he's like, oh, I want to tap some of this for myself. I'll tell them, don't worry about Sauron. Let me worry about Sauron. Like, like I, I love those kinds of moments. And I don't think that's a knock on, oh, well, we wouldn't enjoy this movie unless we had those other movies. It's like he's doing all of this cool work threading these two trilogies together even though when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit he didn't even know there was going to be a Lord of the Rings Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills There's a big learning curve with welding Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact Yeah And I was just going to add this too. like, I get what you're saying, Mark, but I just think any goodwill that the series got with familiarity was quickly dissipated by the armchair critics who felt some kind of way about the first trilogy. I just feel like, again, like it just overweighted. It's the same thing that's going to happen with Avatar when it comes out later. This is not a movie that you can even say to some people, oh, you haven't seen it. The box office says different. Everybody saw this movie. And if they didn't see it, it permeated the culture so much that it was like impossible to ignore. You could have avoided Game of Thrones 
for the entire run that it was on television. You would have known that was a thing. There was no way you were not getting involved in The Lord of the Rings. So there were plenty of people who went to go see The Hobbit who hadn't seen The Lord of the Rings in theaters, who hadn't really had that affinity towards it. It was just something that maybe one of those people brought them to. And even those people, I think, would say that it was still a good, incredible, fun adventure. I just, again, that's why I go to this audience score. Like, look at the audience score. It's not even close. It's 83, 85, and and, and 74. I have to think that is not just Lord of the Rings heads. I think it's because it was fun to watch. To to both y'all's point, my favorite movie of the three is the is an unexpected journey because I I love the way that it set up what we're going to hopefully accomplish in this trilogy. Gave us some of that familiarity. It it introduced some of the characters that we had known and loved already, but it also felt like more of an origin story than we ever got before. You know, you know, it was like we got to be reintroduced to some of these characters, and we got new ones that we saw were laying the groundwork for what was to come in the next five movies so to see that i thought was really cool the the issue that i always have with people is and i get that you know we we all become this person from time to time where you say well you don't have a deep understanding of the war therefore that's why you don't like the movie and i'm like well it's not necessarily my job to have to do hours (laughs) and hours of research to it just so that I can appreciate a movie. I look at it as the movie's job sometimes. The movie doesn't have to hold my hand, but I'm not going to necessarily blame me for not putting in the research, and that's why I didn't enjoy the movie. That's fair. Look, hey, yeah. I, I'm not going to go anything against it. Lon, for you, just like listening to what Jimmy had to say about it, do you think like... Like, do you think it was mis- it was like misunderstanding? Because I think you kind of maybe could at least think of the way the critics saw it at the time, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there, there's definitely the temptation because it is it exactly like what what some of the critics were saying. It's it's this it's a smaller book. It's a smaller original work. So Jackson's adding a lot more of his own ideas to really expand it. And I think that. That's the sort of thing, even when you just lay it out in words without watching three movies, it sounds like a little bit of ego there. I don't, I'm not accusing Peter Jackson of anything, but I think it's really easy to knock a project like that. A guy's going to come along and be like, oh, this J.R.R. Tolkien book's not that long. Well, let me put a lot of my own ideas into it. And I think that's a really easy thing to sort of go at him for. And I think yeah. a lot of people did that when actually I think a lot of the stuff that he adds, I mean, you know, may not be like, super crucial like oh he gave the orcs more of a developed story and a reason for wanting to get thor and Oakenshield specifically and like but i mean i think a lot of i think a lot of it works and i think there was a lot of cynicism around that i also think we we kind of you can't really talk about the reaction too much more without talking about the visuals the yeah. frame rate stuff which i think really turned off a lot of people and does give the movie a very different and somewhat unique look. I think it works. I think it lends it kind of a storybook quality and sort of sets it apart from the Lord of the Rings movies. Like it looks visually distinctive, like its own thing while still being set in Middle Earth. But I also get it's a very like hyper real stylized sort of look. And I think that turned a lot of people off like right away. Yeah, I will say this. Um, first of all, we are going to talk about the CGI and the more specifics of the film, but I want to kind of keep it on the the overview of all three. But in general, I will say Peter Jackson made a lot of stylistic choices with the first three Lord of the Rings. The only difference is with that one is they were very 
specific. Like the look of Fellowship of the Ring is very different than the look of Two Towers as far as the cinematography and the lighting. A lot of it thematically, but some of it literally how they chose to shoot these things because they changed the way they shot after they wrapped the first one. Because remember, they kind of shot it all in big chunks. Yeah. So I think with this particular one, especially with the, the Hobbit franchise, Maybe it was the frame rate, but I also think it was the fact that so many people went into this one with, should this exist? Should this exist? (laughs) It's the very thing that they did with West Side Story. The difference is when Steven Spielberg made West Side Story and then they finally got to see it, everyone was like, oh yeah, I can see, you know, you did some things with that. He added things too. He changed things from the original. He changed aspects of Bernstein's score, like that is like sacrilegious in a lot of cases for a lot of musical theater people. But he made all of those grand sweeping changes. And although people came for the movie for a lot of different things, what Steven Spielberg wasn't one of them. And I think that's the difference. Peter Jackson didn't get that time to do it like that. Mark? That's a f- that's a very fair point, because you look at this and, and it's hard to not compare this, the original trilogy, the classic trilogy and the prequels to the other classic trilogy and the prequels from Star Wars. Right. The difference being that there were a lot of folks like Jacqueline was saying, saying, do we really need another three Lord of the Rings movies? Do we need three Hobbit movies? Whereas when George Lucas announced that he's going back and making the prequels for Star Wars, we were all like, finally, we've been waiting for this forever. It's like the opposite. Yeah. But Peter Jackson does a much better job than my boy George Lucas of marrying the mythology to the original without there being a lot of like, well, but wait, if that happened there, then how does this happen there? You know, there was no like, you know, Darth Vader as a kid built C-3PO kind of stuff where you're like, huh? There wasn't a lot of midi glory. It's like, what? Those were never what? So I mean, look, though. I think it's like the treatise is this idea is like, look, you're giving a fascist and fascism an origin story. This is probably not the same as, you know, defeating the evil empire over the course of three movies. Like, do you see what I mean? Like, that's literally why as I go back on the prequels now, I'm like the the conceit of those movies to dictate the origin of the empire. You're essentially asking someone to retrace the origin of Nazism and like. I don't know if that's like a fun ride for a lot of people. Do you feel me? And then Darth Vader being the ultimate fascist. So like, yeah, there's pod racing too. So. <laughs> there's pod racing too. <laughs> there are let's, also pod racing. Let's look at these three films individually. I think I've talked a little bit about how I feel about the response to each one of them, but let's go ahead and at least start to like rank them. Mark, I'm going to hold off on you because I'm, I'm going to see what Lon has to say because I think most people operate with a very similar ranking with just these three but mm-hmm. Lon, I'll, I'll ask you. Yeah, I, I heard I heard Mark offering the the first one. I, I feel like the first two for me are are pretty much on an even keel. I, I'm I'm probably tempted to go Desolation of Smaug as my top one. I really like uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's take on the voice. I really like those interactions between him and Bilbo. Uh, I, I I just I feel like that one kind of moves the best uh, and has that has the best sort of cutting back and forth between all of the different sort of storylines, the Gandalf storyline, where he's, uh, you know, sort of investigating the necromancer versus the sort of main journey. Uh, I do feel like, I like I like Battle of the Five Armies a lot. I feel like action-wise, it's probably the biggest, it's the one that's the most epic and the most satisfying in that way. And I really like the sort of the the conflict around Thor and Oakenshield and how there's like a depth to that and to where he sort of ends up. There's a complexity to his storyline that I think maybe is kind of not in Lord of the Rings, which is more of a kind of good, conventional, good versus evil, sacrifice, duty kind of story. I think 
he, I like how Jackson sort of teases out the complexity at the end of of, uh, of Five Armies. I do agree. It gets it gets the first hour of Five Armies takes a little bit to get going. I feel like that's probably the weakest stretch in the whole trilogy. I'm not crazy about Alfred of Lake Town, and we spend a lot of time with that guy. It's a little bogged down in that first hour. I think once the action, once we're at Erebor and the the five armies are collecting, I feel like things pick up. But that one is a little bit slower. So I would say that's that's in my third place spot. Mark, where you got? I think that I have I have Unexpected Journey and then I have Desolation of Smaug. But the, Desolation of Smaug, I will say, has my what, my favorite sequence in the prequel trilogy is what Lon was saying, where we're in Scrooge McDuck's vault and we wake <laughs> up Smaug and yeah. we just get to have a really cool cat and mouse sort of conversation. And I thought that was awesome. Then you also see the full might of Smaug that continues into, very briefly, into the Battle of the Five Armies. And then the Battle of the Five Ar- Armies, I just feel like falls off a cliff, not, not plummets to its death, but just is clearly an inferior movie to the first two, particularly given that that was the one that we were hoping was going to just be this this great crowning achievement like what Return of the King was. And so I just felt like it got so long in the tooth. Even by the time we get to the battles, it felt a little wearying. And I sort of thought the CGI was the weakest. Or maybe Peter Jackson asked the most of the CGI in Battle of the Five Armies. And I don't think that it holds up as well as in the first two. I think he asked for more from it. And I think, um, well, we know that he had significantly less time. So the the whole thing was just rushed. I mean, say what you want to about, you know, the Lord of the Rings. It was a big bet, but it was a big bet that they gave them a ton of time to do. I mean, they filmed that first section over, what, 10 months? Almost, Almost 14 total with all of the, like, total time in New Zealand. So I'm like, yeah, they... Yeah, very much a different vibe than an unexpected journey. Because, like, look, Martin Freeman was down there for forever, it seems like, based on, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. Because if you haven't seen those DVDs where they talk about it, yeah, he was down there for forever. But I don't know if that was the case with a lot of the miniature stuff, because that's all the stuff that Guillermo was doing before he kind of basically said, I'm not a part of this. So, like, all of that pre production stuff that, like, Jackson and Philippa and all the people involved with Lord of the Rings spent months, almost years doing. He had to like fast track all of that stuff. And so I, I'm not surprised that certain things feel a little like rushed. Um, I'm with you, Mark. I go one, two, three. Uh, I really like Desolation of Smoke. I like Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. It's incredible. But I just really love starting it off in Hobbiton. I love Bilbo being the sort of odd man out and really sort of just waking up one day like, like not waking up one day, I should say, very reluctantly deciding <laughs> that he needs to like get his stuff together and maybe take this adventure. So yeah, I'm, I, I really enjoyed Unexpected Journey and I just, yeah. I love Martin Freeman's performance. I don't think we talk about it enough. We will go ahead and talk about favorite scenes. Um, I'll start with you on this one, Mark. Do you have one, I guess you've already sort of like teased it out, but talk about maybe your favorite scene. Is it the smog one that you already said? The, the smart one's way up there, too, but I'm, I'm going to defend my favorite movie here because Unexpected Journey is has so much that I love in movies, not the least of which is like a rousing sort of pregame locker room talk. But this is like a song that they're all singing. And, and it's bef- it's the night before we're, we're actually going to go out on a quest and to see all of these these dwarves just like like kind of cranking out this weird tune it's awesome 
and it kind of pumps me up. The pines were roaring on the night. The winds were moaning in the night. The fire was red. It flamed and spread. And I like that. And then I also like Radagast the Brown, just coming out of nowhere, like Wilford Brimley in the Ewoks movies. Just this weirdo that kind of lives in the woods. I like finding the the hidden passage to Rivendell. And I love the stone giants. There's just, there's so many cool creatures that we get to see in the in, in an unexpected journey. And it's also nice to get to know Bilbo because I, I feel like we, I never really got to know who Bilbo was and through the first three classic trilogy movies, he was always that guy that freaked out when he saw the ring and I could never get that out of my head. So to get a new perspective on Bilbo being an actual human hobbit person, an actual being that you care about, I thought was what was well done and, and I was invested in his journey. Uh, I dig that one. Lon, what about you? Do you have a favorite uh, scene from the trilogy in general? Uh, well, I do want to point out, we, we, uh, Mark was talking about Unexpected Journey. My favorite sequence is Unexpected Journey is one of, I think, the highlights of the whole trilogy, and that's the escape from Goblin Town, which is just yeah. such a, it's such a vintage Peter Jackson-y kind of sequence. Like, he really gets into the, the sort of monsterism and grotesqueness of the goblins, uh, and it gives it that kind of, like, throwback, sort of fun, like, almost an 80s adventure movie sort of vibe to that sequence. I really love it. It feels almost like something out of a classic Peter Jackson horror film, but updated in this Middle Earth world. You thought you could escape me. (laughs) What are you going to do now, wizard? That'll do it. The other thing I'd like to highlight, just as long as we're talking about favorite stuff, Lee Pace's performance as Thranduil is so good in these movies. He nails the, like, cold imperiousness of the elves better than anyone else in any of these movies. I think there's there's a scene in Five Armies where he shows up and the humans from Lake Town think that he's there to help them because they bring food. He's riding like a moose or like a deer with these huge moose antlers. And and he's like, no, I'm here for these diamonds. The elves have <laughs> gems and the, he owes me my diamonds. And it's just, it's like the perfect casting of Lee Pace. And it's just it's so delivered so well from the top of this ridiculous beast. And I, I really love that. Scene. It's I, I do love the sort of like very it's 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 kind of Snow White. It's kind of Three Stooges with the dwarves. They very much have a lot mm-hmm. of comedic moments, as they did in the first one with the some of the hobbits. Um, but I would actually say the fish falling in love with the bird scenario, which is the elf falling in love with the dwarf. Uh, through the course of this movie's, yes, I'm going to give Thirst its moment in the sun here (laughs) because it's so cute. It's so cute. Well, first of all, um, the actor who plays uh, Keely is um, uh, also incredibly cute and hilarious. And so, like, I don't know. I'm just like, I I, I loved that whole thing. I loved what Evangeline Lilly did with it. It was cute. I was digging it. I I I think it sets the foundation for Gimli and Legolas later in a more romance type setting, although there's plenty of fan fiction that tries to speak 
to the <laughs> to the romance between them. Um, I love that because even in the Lord of the Rings, one of my favorite things is from the extended edition when you find out Boromir's uh, brother marries the girl that's like, I am no man, uh, Amir. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's Amir. like one of my favorite things is like the little side romances that you find out happen uh, through the course of the Lord of the Rings. Like there are other people that fall in love in this story besides, you know, Sam, Rosie Cotton and Aragon mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and his chick. Uh, what about you, Mark? Like we've already gone through favorite scenes. Is there a favorite character that you love? I think I've also talked about favorite characters or is there one particular uh, character moment that you really want to like outshine? Well, I, I agree with Juan that I think that Thorin Oakenshield's sort of uh, arc is very uh, different and and fresh that as opposed to what we would have seen in the original trilogy. And and a lot of that is thanks to Richard Armitage because I just think he's brilliant throughout these movies. And you, but I'm also going to say that Andy Serkis's Gollum leaves. I mean. He's yeah. so good when he's on screen. It was so great to see him. But the cool behind the scenes fact is that Andy Serkis shot his scenes as Gollum in like a week for at least for one of the movies. And then he stayed on to be like the second AD yeah. and sort of get his directing chops. And that's why now you see him directing movies. And it's like so he's sort of learning at the foot of Peter Jackson for these movies. But if I had to pick one and I don't want to take Juan's uh, certain famous voice actor that's voicing a giant dragon, I would go with Richard Armitage as Thorin Oakenshield. But I'll also give many props to Martin Freeman simply because he wasn't cast as Bilbo until like six weeks before yeah. production began. So, I mean, you talk about like coming in the last week of training camp and having to learn the whole playbook. That's a real impressive performance to pull off. Yeah, and very fitting with Peter Jackson movies because at least he started with the right character this time. The last time he started with the wrong actor and had to yep. recast it. Yep. So at least he got that one. Uh, I think he stresses over his lead actors just based on that. You know, he stresses over it, maybe overthinks it because I'm going to go ahead and say Martin Freeman is my favorite choice. Everett Ross, uh, whether he's playing <laughs> Dr. John Watson uh, whether he's in this as Bilbo, it don't matter. I just love him. I do. He's absolutely hilarious. He gives off very like, I'm just over it, British dry humor. And if you watch the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes, he flips off every single camera that comes within 10 feet of him for the uh. behind the scenes footage. Because apparently, <laughs> so like when you're in the Lord of the Rings movies, they have to like film them all the time for their BTS stuff. And they know they're overshooting all this stuff. And apparently Martin Freeman didn't like that. And so he knew the best way to get them to stop filming him was to flip them off. And so he literally like they did a montage supercut of him just flipping off everyone. That's so great. But he also the character of Bilbo reminds me a lot of me where he's just kind of happy being being who he is. And he doesn't really want to go on an adventure. It's like I don't really want a lot of hurdles or challenges in my life. And you get thrown something you're like, fine, I'll go. You end up being richer for the journey, but you never really want to go. You know, you just kind of want to hang out and relax with your dog. Yeah, he's like he's got like 10 percent Tim from the office still in this. <laughs> he does. You feel like he's going to just like break the fourth wall and be like, Oh, yeah. Also, I want to let people know one of the reasons why we love uh, Thorin Oakenshield so much is because Richard Armitage is one of the most talented voice actors to ever grace the planet. He voices Castlevania, which a lot of folks know him for. I know him from voicing romance novels. He's also, oh, did you guys hear go. that that Wolverine podcast? Yeah, he also did? does He's the Wolverine, Wolverine podcast. Like this guy, really good Wolverine. This guy's voice, like, like so. A lot of people talk about like Morgan Freeman and his voice work. In certain circles, Richard Armitage is like, girl, 
<laughs> Him and Sebastian York. So Richard Armitage, I take that back, has only done one full romance novel, but he does a lot of romantic British things. So he does like Romeo and Juliet and Shakespeare and that yeah. kind of stuff. So you can definitely hear him romancing you, even if it isn't, you know, Shakespearean. He was also uh, Francis Dollarhide in uh, Hannibal. Yes, he was. That, when they he did was the Red Dragon, Hannibal. When they did the Red Dragon season. Of oh, Hannibal. my God. Yeah, he was. No, yeah. he's great. And yeah, his voice is seductive. I will just say it like you. There's a reason why everyone listens to Thor and Oakenshield and the yeah. thing. It's that timber, and it's just like it just makes you stand at attention. Trust me, L- and it ladies, makes him scary the- yeah. in that third movie when he does. He he manages that transition really well. It could have been cheesy, but, but he I think does he it so it. well. Yeah. And yeah, that's the voice acting. Um, yeah, for the ladies, gays, and days listening, please. Do yourself a favor and go listen to Mr. Richard Armitage. He is he's quite seductive. There, that's not the only seductive thing, though. There was lots of things that were auditorily pleasing in The Hobbit, including the yeah. score, which was yeah. very moving and sweeping. And one that is actually a frequent rotation on my instrumental playlist that I use to try to write things. So mm. I dug the music. Uh, that's Newman, right? Yeah, it's got to be, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about you, Mark? Oh, no, Howard Shore. Sure, that's right. No, that is Howard Shore. You're right. Yeah. That is Howard Shore. Uh, what about you, Mark? Uh, did you have any particular, is it the, what would you say is the most attractive aspect to the film series? Is it the music or the plot? I think we can both say it's not the CGI outside of the acting and maybe the direction. Yeah, it's not the 48 frames. Sorry, Juan. I can't, I can't get past it. I, I, it doesn't like completely ruin the movie for me, but I do feel like I'm front row at a Broadway production and that's on a good day with being the 48 frames. A bad day is like, it looks like the end of Pee Wee's Big Adventure when he's just riding through movie sets and it, it just, everything felt more artificial to me than, than I, it should have because it's like you're working that hard to make all this stuff look real. Why would you, it, it's almost like it does a disservice to everybody's hard work that you're filming it in 48 frames. Um, but having said that, I still think the music's great. I think most of the CGI holds up really well, but it's the interaction of the characters for me. It's the team up aspect of these movies that I really buy into. So, and that's why I think Thor and Oakenshield's plotline is so interesting. It's because you don't know which way this guy's going to break because he's got his own motivations. He's also thinking about the bigger scope. And the when when you have a bunch of different, I mean, you're talking about a bunch of different real species here teaming up to all figure out, are we going to be a team here? Are we going to be divided amongst ourselves? It's a really cool through line, and it's a really interesting thing. And I just wish that it played out in a more exciting fashion. And that's weird to say, given that the Battle of the Five Armies is pretty much a giant battle the last hour and a half. It just never felt that moving to me by the time we got there. I don't think it's uh, I don't think there's many people that disagree with you on that particular aspect. I still of it. can't put my finger on why it other than maybe, it, you know, you could have truncated it into two movies like what Peter originally wanted to do. But it's just like we're, we've been waiting for this battle for this epic epic climax and by the time we get there it just feels like well okay we're here we saw grandma uh what time are we leaving what time are we going back home hey uh yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say that that's completely yeah it's it's a very pervasive opinion i'll put it to you that way but i think more people complain about the pacing in general across the three films like basically the idea that you could toe for grace this and make a good clean movie (laughs) and that there was a certain level of greed 
I think surrounding the promotion of this movie that people felt like people just felt it felt greedy for them mm-hmm. to do it the way that they were doing it. The fact that they were doing it so quickly, the fact that they were doing it in a three parter, like everything just reeked of we are going to bleed this dry. And I think like people, it's almost like you, you every every studio is needy for box office receipts. But when you look needy, it's almost worse. Does that make sense? I, I I don't know. I think that for me it was the biggest thing that people railed against. That was the thing that that damaged it is that they they went into this thing thinking it was bad and that the people involved in it were doing it for poor reasons and anything about it that was anything less than stellar they were gonna rip. I don't know, Lon. What about you? What do you think was the most glaring thing sort of stood out from you from all of the three films, good or bad? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think you're. I think this is basically correct. I think people went in with a pretty cynical mindset, with a pretty demanding mindset. I mean, to me, I think that the the, the frame rate conversation, as I recall, when these movies came out, dominated. Certainly, the first movie that yeah. was what people were talking about. It, that was like when people would go see it. How did you think it looked? What did you think? And everybody had their take, and it became the kind of this the battle of the five hot takes or whatever. And I, I think that's so <laughs> overshadowed the content that for almost like a year afterwards, I would try to talk about the movies and people would just want to talk about why does it look so shiny or why does it look like, like why, you know, why does it look like so photo realistic, but hyper real or why are the colors all weird? And, and I, I just feel like it couldn't, it couldn't really shake that for a really long time. I agree too with, with what you're saying, Jacqueline, that, that the, the conversation about should this have been one movie? Should this have been two movies? Why does it need to be three movies? And I, I always kind of feel like that's a silly, like, well, why, why make movies? Just go, go build a bridge if you want to be <laughs> super productive. Like, no, you don't need any movie, right? Like, I, I always feel like that's kind of a silly conversation. We got really over the top with this one. Like, like, no, we don't need more Middle Earth movies. We, we, we want them. It's fun to spend time in Middle Earth. And I agree that that is actually like not a poor sentiment. I think if it didn't look so transparent in their efforts that I I don't think it was that. I I, I agree with you. That is a like straw argument. And I think sometimes it's just argument for a movie that may doesn't speak to whichever audience member there was. But this one was so pervasive. And I think so many people were kind of like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, this was, I think, a little bit of that. And honestly, it's something that Harry Potter dealt with when they did The Cursed Child, too. It's it's sort of like people had already paid out the nose and given so much to these characters in this world. They felt like, if you're coming back, at least make me feel that it's going to be worth my time. I hope they're feeling that about the Amazon show. Um, They had their panel at Comic-Con not too long ago, Stephen Colbert. I think they can't keep him away from there. Um, (laughs) No, I don't even think they paid him or put him up in a hotel room. I I think Stephen Colbert is like, look, you're not going to stop me from getting into the room. He's just showing up in full wood elf garb, like ready to go. (laughs) You know what's really funny is I feel bad for other like capable moderators who are also Lord of the Rings like fans because (laughs) he's sort of like the Chris Hardwick now. Like nobody can elevate in that part of nerddom because he takes the top spot. Like he like there's just no way like it was great to see like Ash Cotton moderating the Marvel panel at Hall H because yeah. like I said, for so long that was just held by one person. Uh, but that's like the kind of the way it is with this one. I worry for this show, if I'm being really honest, not because I think it'll be bad, but just because I don't think it's going to be what people expect. Like they're going way far back, like mm-hmm. way far back. And then in 10, 
to eventually get to where the events of the Lord of the Rings end. Like that's the that's the goal. Yeah, I I I mean it's it, like I feel like it's a plus and a minus. Like on the good on the good side, they don't have to deal with anything they don't want to. It's it's thousands of years before they can pick and choose the elements that they like. They can make up their own stuff. It's a lot of freedom you wouldn't have if you were doing like Obi-Wan, you know, where like this has to fit right into the middle of an ongoing story. But there's so few elements that people will really recognize. They're 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 branching out into this whole new part of the world. Like there are different continents in Middle Earth at this point that don't exist in Lord of the Rings. So I feel like it's going to feel really foreign to people too, and they're going to have their work cut out for them to make it feel sufficiently Lord of the Ringsy. You know, like, that's why I'm so fascinated by it, though, because, again, yeah. I mean, th th this is something that, you know, Star Wars hasn't been able to do. It hasn't been able to get out of its own sandbox. And now Lord of the Rings right. is like, OK, we're going back thousands of years and we're going to tell you a story. And I hope that I hope people support at least I, I hope people give it a chance. I right. think they will. It's going to get a lot of promotion. I'm going to give it a shot. I'm excited for it. I'm excited that I don't know a lot of the characters, or at least I don't think I do. There's going to be ties, obviously, with with folks like yeah. Sauron and stuff like that. But I'm excited for what this could bring. Yeah, Elrond, Galadriel, and Sauron, I think, are the only yeah. major characters that we know. Yeah. Gandalf will probably show up at some point. I've got to at some he's point. A, he's alive. Uh I'm more interested in the long game of it. I'm sort of interested. This is the way I feel like when when we first when when Kevin Feige first said, I think after Iron Man 2, that they were plotting a 10 year plan for the MCU. Like that was like the very first time he mentioned that. And I remember when he mentioned that, I was like, I don't know if I'm buying your level of crazy, but I'm at least going to like get a ticket for the show. You know what yep. I mean? Like, I don't know mm -hmm. if I'm buying it, but like. I'm going to come take a peek. And so that's the way I feel with the Lord of the Rings. It's like, I don't know if this gamble is going to pay off. Y'all paid a lot of money. Y'all have a lot of money, but y'all paid a lot of money for this show. I hope it's worth it. <laughs> like, I really hope it's worth it. I hope yeah. it's worth your time. I hope it's worth your effort. There's another show that's a prequel, that's a high fantasy prequel that is going through a similar thing. And I just wonder, like, it seems like every single sh like streaming services trying to find their Game of Thrones, Amazon more than anyone else. Mm. And yeah, well, that, Bezos had that meeting where he apparently like fist on the desk, like get me a Game of Thrones. So like yeah. very explicitly like, very explicitly. we got to go get Jeff a Game of Thrones. We're going to go get Jeff a Game of Thrones. So yeah. then they made Wheel of Time. They made Wheel this, time, they the made this. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. we're going to go get Jeff a son. <laughs> so um, like I said, and, and also that's, I said too, there's three. There's the Sandman series too, which is a sure. comic, but it's also yeah. very high fantasy. So Witcher, it's so interesting to see <laughs> what these all these people are doing. They're all chasing the same banner. It's going to be interesting to see who maybe comes out on top. But like I said, I'm, I bought a ticket to the show. I'm excited. <laughs> Actually, uh, of those three, of, look, real yeah. quick, of those three, which do y'all think would have the best chance of being Lord of the Rings? Sandman, Lord, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, or the Game of Thrones prequel, uh, House of Dragon? Ooh. Um... I still have to go with Lord of the Rings simply because I think there's there's a sour taste in a lot of Game of Thrones fans' mouth from the most recent season. Yeah. And and Sandman I love personally. I just don't think that it's got the I don't think it's got the scope uh, of appeal to a mass audience in the same way that's as accessible as something like a known property like Lord of the Rings. So I'm I'm still saying it's gonna be the Ring of Power. What about Elon? 
I'm I'm inclined to agree. I feel like the exactly what we've been talking about, where there was a lot of cynicism and sort of jaded audience going into the Hobbit films. I feel like you've got to counteract a lot of that coming out of Game of Thrones. Like there's just a lot of generally negative sentiment about how that previous show wrapped up and the fact that George R. R. Martin hasn't finished the books. And I think a lot of people feel like they were left hanging by that franchise. And so I feel like a lot of that's going to get taken out on the new one. Um, I'm inclined to go Lord of the Rings too, but I do feel like it really looks like they're nailing it. That Sandman trailer was really great. And it Mm -hmm. feels like so much like the world of those early Sandman comics. And I'm very, I've been very like, cautious and guarded because I love those comics and I was like I don't know if that makes sense as a Netflix show but I feel like if they're if they're nailing it the way it looks like they might be it could be Sandman as the next big phenomenon yeah that is actually the one that I was gonna bet of those three and the main reason is especially what's interesting obviously Tolkien cannot be involved but his family is involved in the Lord of the Rings show all three of them have intimate involvement with their creators. I think Neil Gaiman is the only one of those that having intimate involvement could be a good thing because all of the good Neil Gaiman adaptations had him involved early on and all of the bad ones didn't. It's true. So that I think is a good place to end on that one, basically saying we'll see and yay Sandman. (laughs) I'm excited. It looks cool. It looks cool. Like a lot of those sequences really do look like they've somehow captured the style and aesthetic of those books, which I didn't think was possible. Yeah. And look, hey, bookmark this page when we're wrong and House of Dragon (laughs) cleans up at the Emmys uh, (laughs) Emmys next year. You can you can say that we were wrong. Uh, Let's go ahead and say uh, let's go ahead and get out of here. We do not have a mailbag this week because this is like I feel like the biggest mailbag episode in so many ways since we had like six people request it but Lon sir thank you so much for joining us it is always a pleasure it feels educational professorial if I I dare say (laughs) very kind of you thank you always always happy to be here Uh, can you go ahead and give us a TV movie recommendation because I know for a fact you're a man in the know and you know what shows and and movies we should be checking out if he says Uh, the gray man (laughs) <laughs> no. Oh boy. Did you, have you watched The Gray Man? I was not a huge fan. You of, love uh, CGI of, smoke. You just don't want to admit it. I mean, obviously, the rehearsal, if you guys are not watching Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal on HBO Max, I'm I'm obsessed with this. This most recent episode. It's only been on for two weeks. This most recent one really ratchets it up to uh the next level. I would also recommend if anybody has showtime. I really enjoyed uh, Nas, rapper Nas co-directed a three-part true crime documentary about the Supreme Team, the 80s Queens drug cartel that was so influential in like the early days of hip hop. It's really good. I breezed through it in one day. Uh, That's on Showtime. It's called Supreme Team. Check that out. Oh, right. I dig. I dig. Um, Honestly, I can't even think of anything that I've watched recently besides Comic-Con trailers, but I think everyone (laughs) should watch the Wakanda Forever trailer multiple times. I yeah, and not Multiple just to times. speculate because it's actually a beautiful like two minute piece of art as well. Yes, that's... Um, and then you can also have some fun speculating. You know what I just saw? You know what? I, then I'll shut up. You know what I just saw for the uh, for the first time, and I'm almost finished with with season one. Is um, only murders in the building. I just never watched yeah. it for whatever reason. It's so much fun. It is very fun. It, oh, it is so a perfect fun. show that robs the genre that it's parodying for what makes it great. 
yeah. while still parroting yeah. everything that's wrong about it. I love, love, love that show so much. You have and the to three understand. of them are so good together. So yeah. that's, oh that's God, my little yeah. recommendation. That's, oh. the, that's what's crazy is you know that Steve Martin and Martin Short are like this comic duo you've seen so much, but Selena Gomez just fits so perfectly Perfect. in there. It's wild that they came up with this combination. And it's, and it's honestly, it's very chocolate and peanut butter. Like you are literally yeah. like, get them to do everything together. <laughs> yeah. Never stop them from doing things together. And I love this one little anecdote and I'll get out of here because I thought it was so great. Selena Gomez recently said that like, as Mark can appreciate this, being around funny people makes you funny, right? Like, I think like that's why comics hang out with each other. They sort of like sharpen their, their like uh, improv skills with each other, just breaking balls backstage. And she said, she gave a really great burn to Steve Martin, like he gave a joke and she gave a really good one back. And like Martin Short, like turned to her and was like, good job, kid. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. can you imagine the moment? Well, it doesn't matter what the joke is. You had Martin Short say to you, good job on roasting another comedy legend. I'm done. I will that's never, I would never tell yeah. a joke again. Yep. <laughs> all retire. right. I'm like, that's it. We can retire. That's it for us this week. Lon, first of all, though, real quick, uh, where can folks find you? What else are you working on? What should they oh, be checking out? Uh, just find me on Twitter at L-O-N-S. That's the best place to uh, keep up with everything I'm working on. And if you want to check out my podcast with Hal Rudnick, it's called Binge Boys. You can find that on Spotify, uh, Apple uh, Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Just want to let folks remind you, you can be like Jimmy. You can recommend a movie to us. Just make sure you email us as rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. Also, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share this with all of your friends on every platform. Follow if it makes you do that. But we want to tell people about this podcast so they can tell us all the ways that we were wrong. Next week, sir, <laughs> I think we're going to get very hymtastic. Himbotastic? Is that a word? I think it, 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 it should be now. We're going to be uh, screaming goats ranking the Thor movies. Our Definitely. favorite Thor movies, the best the least, everything in between, everything that's good in Asgard, may it rest in peace. <laughs> may it rest in peace. Or new Asgard. Which North, is new Asgard's there. New yeah. Asgard, yeah. yeah. Risen like the Phoenix, like we will next week. And we will see y'all next time <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Bye-bye. 